0: Once the body arrives into the world, it immediately becomes fragile, fragile in that it needs nourishment, protection, education, and endless chances. Bodies of color in particular have had these basic human rights revoked and it continues I call for protection of these bodies through a reassessment of the justice system and retraining of authorities who violate the civil liberties of its
1: citizens of color through racial profiling, stop and frisk, and abuse. Human life is at stake, and my wish is
2: that
0: the next four years will reflect back the beauty and not the wreckage of our existence. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers.
3: And I'm Melissa Falavina, the Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast.
0: And that was poet Tina Chang with a message for the next president of the United States. In this episode, we'll be hearing from more of the country's most thoughtful and articulate citizens, poets and writers, on their hopes, dreams, and ideas for the next president.
3: We'll also be talking about the MFA issue and hearing some advice from students for those looking into MFA programs. And we'll hear from Tracy Sherrod, the editorial director of Amistad Press, about the importance of publishing diverse voices in today's literary
0: landscape. Not to mention a report from the softball field. And so much more. So stick around. October issue is here.
3: It is. It's the MFA issue. We've got some really great stuff about the MFA in this 10th annual special section.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's not all about the MFA. We also have uh, some really terrific profiles and interviews, mm-hmm. uh, including the cover profile of Teju Cole, uh, who is the author of Every Day is for the Thief and Open City. He's also the photography critic of the New York Times Magazine. And his third book, his first essay collection, is out now from Random House. It's called Known and Strange Things, and it contains more than 50 pieces spanning politics, history, literature, photography, and art. He touches on Virginia Woolf, James Baldwin, President Obama, Black Lives Matter, and a lot more. So contributing editor Kevin Nance flew to New York from Chicago to interview him as well as photograph him. You know, readers of the magazine may not have noticed that in addition to being a first-class writer... Uh, Nance is also a professional photographer. Uh, he's brought his camera along when interviewing writers such as August Kleinzoller, Jasmine Ward, Marilyn Robinson, and Judy Bloom. And we're really happy to have words and images from Kevin in this issue as well.
3: We also have a Q&A with Jacqueline Woodson, who's the author of dozens of books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry for children and young adult readers. Her last young adult book, The Memoir and Verse, Brown Girl Dreaming, won the National Book Award. She's also won a bunch of awards, the Newbery Medal, the Coretta Scott King Award, the Caldecott Medal. Um, And her new novel, Another Brooklyn, which is out now from Amistad Press, is a really fantastic book that tells the story of four girls growing up in Bushwick. And like a lot of her work, it deals with identity, sexuality, girlhood, and womanhood. Um, But it's also this uh, close exploration of 1970s Brooklyn and white flight and race. It's just a very powerful lyrical novel that takes some of its inspiration from Woodson's own experience growing up. Um, so one of our contributing editors, Rigoberto Gonzalez, um, who's also a very prolific author of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and books for children, um, went to visit her at her home in Brooklyn, and they just had a really great conversation. So check that out.
0: And we also have William Giraldi and Sven Burkertz talking about memoir. Uh, Billy, of course, has appeared in our pages before. He's interviewed Louise Glick and Frank Bedart. He's also contributed the art of reading Dennis Johnson, Gerard Manley Hopkins, John Donne, and others. He's the author of two novels and the new memoir, The Hero's Body. Uh, he's really just one of the smartest writers I know. So we asked him to have a conversation with Sven Ruckerts. Uh, he is the author of 10 books, including the memoir, My Sky Blue Trades, Growing Up Counter in a Contrary Time, and The Art of Time and Memoir. He also edits the journal Agni and directs the Bennington Writing Seminars where he teaches memoir. So definitely check out that interview. It's called Pay Attention.
3: So the election is just over two months away. It is.
0: And everywhere you look, it's politics and more politics. Uh, we're recording this a week after the Democratic National Convention. The debates are happening soon and every day we hear more from the political pundits and talking heads. Uh, you know, Clickbait is clogging up our social media channels can be hard to know where to turn to find an intelligent rational take on the state of our country. So we decided to ask 50 American poets and writers to tell us in just a few sentences what they would like the next president to know.
3: Yeah, and we've been hearing some incredibly thoughtful and passionate responses. You know, these are voices from so many different backgrounds representing so many different experiences, and it's really helped cut through that noise a little and kind of restored our faith in humanity.
0: Right. So we're going to listen to some of those now.
4: Wait,
3: I would like you to know
5: that we do not have any more time at all to postpone addressing the issue of climate change. And while you're working to ensure the survival of the planet, please remember that some of us are dying at an even faster rate from poverty, lack of health care, gun violence, police brutality, war, and 27 kinds of intolerance. So please use your authority to help ensure that we live to see and help implement the climate change solutions you set in
2: motion.
1: President Clinton, after celebrating with a tall flute of Prosecco, please make gun reform your first order of business. In four years, I hope to live in a country where the pen is mightier than the gun and the money that keeps it in power.
4: Peace is a good word for politicians to look up, understand the meaning of it, use it once in a while, learn to practice it. You are committing environmental child abuse by poisoning our food, polluting our air, and totally destroying the environment so that a few of your cronies can make a few extra billion or two while the rest of us will not survive even to serve you. Make fighting
2: bigotry a priority. Bigotry of all sorts from race to sexuality to gender to class. It's especially important this time around as this election has unleashed a whole new wave of intense bigotry directed at all sorts of minorities. So I feel it is your urgent responsibility to face this and work to increase the dialogue, education, and awareness required to heal and advance.
4: We are dumping 8 million metric tons of plastic into the oceans every year. Our government has to get involved in legislation that reduces one-use plastics,
0: invests in alternative packaging ideas, and dramatically decreases pollution in the oceans, or by 2050 there will be more plastic in the sea than fish.
5: What's really important to me is the radical reconceptualization of our broken criminal justice system that targets young black and brown people, increasingly girls and young women for arrest, detention, and incarceration, thereby continuing the program of relegating generations of people of color to second-class citizenry. It is clear to so many of us that the increased presence of police in daily life alongside the militarization of police forces is the wrong path to go down, and that we have to think progressively in our imagining of the future we'd like to create.
0: There is no present or future Without immigrants, white supremacy and all its sequelae is one of the gravest threats to our democracy. That was Evie Shockley, Eleanor Henderson, Alejandro Murguia, Porchista Kokpor, Anthony Dore, Don Lundy Martin, and Juno Diaz.
3: We have the full Dear President article online where you can find these recordings and more from 50 poets and writers from all over the country. You can also join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag #DearPresident. In the meantime, let's listen to a few more messages for the next Commander-in-Chief.
6: The greatest threats facing the United States are not terrorism and illegal immigration, but rather injustice, bias, inequality, and fear. To be a great nation, we must focus on criminal justice reform, the eradication of the vestiges of slavery, education, and human and civil rights for all. I yell at Waldman.
1: Madam President, thank you for sparing us your opponent's dismal and clownish stupidity, his blind and blinding hate. I'm still scared, though. I'm scared that you think beating him will be the hardest part of your job, and I'm scared of what's happening to the environment, to our schools and water supply and our tolerance, scared of people being out of work and people being hooked on painkillers and people not being allowed to use the restroom where they feel most comfortable. I don't give a rip if you're honest or transparent or running a thousand different email servers but I need you to be compassionate and smart and clear-eyed to be decent and flexible and open-minded to be afraid with me with all of us and despite our fears not least yours I need you to be brave and resilient and well hopeful. Brett Anthony Johnston
5: Please stop separating families through deportation Let it be understood that they did not want to be in this country to begin with. Which reminds me, please stop bombing children, stop invading countries, stop sending the young and poor onto the battlefields. Please create a path toward citizenship for everyone, not just the dreamers, because we all learn to dream from our parents. Javier
1: Zamora
6: This is Naomi Shihab Nye. Since arts and humanities programs enrich our American lives beyond measure, connecting and inspiring people of different backgrounds and inclinations better than anything else does, it would be reasonable to support them threefold or more, without question. The fact that Bernie Sanders, a Jewish American, found it possible to be frank about the injustice and criminal oppression that Palestinian people have suffered for the past 68 years suggests other politicians might be able to do this too. Injustice for one side does not help the other side, and everyone knows this, but does not speak or act as honestly or honorably as Sanders did. Your country is complex. It is hard to imagine a foreigner being able to fix it for you. Keep this in mind when you consider invading another nation. Karan Mahajan. America has often seen itself as a beacon of democracy, but the American project has always been about a settler project of inclusion and exclusion. Democracy for those imagined as real Americans and inequality for slaves, immigrants, black and brown bodies and those who live in places the United States has colonized or destabilized, most recently Iraq and Libya. I hope that you can see yourself not just as a standard bearer for a global economic elite, but as a force of equality and justice for all. Ken Chen. Future President Hillary Clinton, this is Karen Russell. I live in Portland, Oregon, where every day we watch our homeless camps grow in size. Homelessness is a national crisis, and yet it's barely been discussed this election season. You have pledged to direct more federal resources to those who need them most. As you do so, please do not forget about some of your most vulnerable constituents, homeless Americans. This issue is at the nexus of economic inequality, rising housing costs, lack of affordable housing, lack of health care accessibility, joblessness, and systemic racism. Please make connecting all Americans to safe, stable homes and services a
4: priority. This is Paul Lasicki. I'd like to trust that the voice of any suffering person, regardless of category, had as much currency with you as some power broker. I'd like not to doubt you knew that suffering was of a piece with the planet's emergency, the ongoing story of oil, water, war, animals.
6: The blight on quote-unquote American exceptionalism is the recurring cycle of black youth raised in communities where poverty, inadequate education, few recreational and job opportunities exclude too many of them from the promise of the American dream. It is urgent that the president fund programs now to address this shameful problem. Elizabeth Nunez, novelist, distinguished professor, Hunter College, CUNY.
4: Dear Madam President, Our undocumented families are not silent or invisible in our hearts. May they be just as present in your actions as we continue to build this home, this country, together. Rigoberto Gonzalez.
2: This is Mira Patassin, and if there was something I would say to the next president, it would be this. What the world wants, demands, deserves, and needs from you is that you guide your leadership and base your decisions on just one principle, love. Because isn't that the whole point to it all, love? Isn't that why we keep going?
4: I would like the next president to know that the 2016 presidential campaign has awoken a sizable portion of this country's electorate to the limitations of a two-party system that is beholden more to their own status quo than the interests of their constituencies. That we are more awake than ever to the corruption of politicians who claim allegiance to the people, but whose votes and policies are purchased outright by producers of weaponry and manufacturers of economic disparity. I would like the next president to know that we will be watching and taking note of their promises to Wall Street and the military-industrial complex, that we will call out their positions on trade deals that betray American workers, their complicity with a prison industrial complex that seeks to profit from incarceration, their commitment to a justice system that frees criminals in uniform while killing people of color with impunity, and that we will organize beyond their scarecrows of fear to create a movement capable of replacing this oligarchy with the highest of this nation's ideals. Democracy. My name is Taimba Chess.
0: This issue also includes the 10th annual special section on the MFA, including a long piece by contributing editor Jeremiah Chamberlain about the low residency MFA program at Warren Wilson College. Uh, Of course, Ellen Bryant Voigt is the one who started that in 1976 at Goddard College. And then she moved it to Warren Wilson in the early 80s. And that really kind of started this low residency revolution. There's now more than 50 low residency programs. Uh, And it's a really interesting piece um, that sort of charts that whole revolution.
3: We also have um, some really great pieces uh, throughout the section, including one by novelist Naomi Jackson um, about her experiences at the Iowa Writers' Workshop as a person of color. Um, We've got a piece by Erica Anderson and Brian Gresko on creating safe spaces in creative nonfiction workshops. Um, We've also got uh, a great essay by the renowned fantasy and steampunk author James P. Blaylock on teaching philosophies
0: um, and a whole lot more. So this past spring, I was in Los Angeles for the AWP conference. Uh, I, along with thousands of other writers.
3: Yeah, tens of thousands, I think. Yeah,
0: probably. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of people there. So many. And it's really great to hear directly from the readers who come up to our booth and talk to me. Uh, And this year, I also spoke with... MFA students, both current and former students, and asked them uh, for advice uh, for prospective students about what, you know, what to look for in an MFA program, uh, and it was really great to hear directly from students who had you know, recently been through that process. Uh, so we're going to listen to some of those now.
5: My name is Yolanda Rice. I am a MFA student at Rosemont College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my advice to those looking for an MFA program is to do your research. Do your research. Um, Study um, the schools across the country, not just in one particular part of the country because that's where you feel most comfortable. The most greatest programs may be completely out of your comfort zone. So go for what you believe in in your heart and because it's a program, you're spending your money so you spend it wisely. So do your research.
2: My name is Savannah Johnson. I am a poetry MFA student at the University of Miami, and my advice for choosing an MFA program in creative writing is to choose one that is fully funded. There is no reason you should go into
1: more debt getting an MFA in creative writing. My name is Leanne Adams, and I go to Creighton University. Um, I am a first year in the MFA program. I needed a flexible program that let me decide whether I wanted to be a teacher or not. Some people want to just write. Other people want to teach. Some people want to do both. So look for a program that's going to fit what you want. Uh, this is Ben Bush. I'm a student at University of Iowa at the Writers' Workshop. And uh, Sayed Jones just gave a really good panel discussion, I guess sort of on, it was sort of related to class and various issues here. And he did a, one of his real applause moments was when he said, if you guys are applying to an MFA, don't go into debt, go to somewhere that's funded, that's giving you money, uh, they're investing in you. Don't forget that the amount of money they're willing to give to you is a gesture of how much they believe in you. And there's sometimes more funded programs than I think people are aware of, and it's just a degree that um, you're not gonna make that money back, and so don't, don't go into debt for it. Um, that being said, I guess the other thing is that if you get two financial offers, don't forget that you can negotiate upwards, that it's a, it's a contract, like if you were negotiating for a job. And if there's a place you want to go to and the other place has more money, don't be afraid to talk to them about that and to keep your options open and to look at what's available out there. Uh, good luck with those applications. I'm
2: Maya Lowy. I'm an MFA candidate at the University of New Orleans. And... For people applying to graduate school, I would suggest thinking about which city you want to be in, because ultimately you're going to have to live somewhere. You can't just write somewhere. So definitely don't apply to a place you wouldn't want to move to for a while.
3: Uh, My name is Kaylee Schoen. I'm a Fiction MFA at Emerson College,
1: and my best advice is to um, meet some of the alum from the potential schools and get to know what they're like and if they're the kinds of people that you would want to hang out with
3: for two or three years, um, because you're going to spend a lot more time with the other students than you are even with your professors, and that's going to be your group of friends for two or three years and hopefully into the future.
0: Uh, My name is Bob Taylor. I go to UNCW, North Carolina Wilmington. And I'd say look for a school that feels right. You know, if you got a good feeling about it, that's I think that's the ticket.
1: My name is Christina Rivera. I go to Mount St. Mary's University. I'm getting my MFA in Creative Writing. I went about it by finding out what program would allow me to write in both English and Spanish because I consider myself both bilingual and biliterate. And so I did a lot of research online, looking up programs, trying to find where they would allow it. I called a lot of numbers asking them, oh, is it okay if I write in both? I can provide translations. And I got a lot of no's until I finally found the yes. And that was like heaven sent, it felt like. So do your research and call a lot of numbers and talk to people, that's the number one. Because it may not say it on their website, but if you talk to someone, they may allow it.
5: My name is Ernesto Abetia. I am an MFA student at Arizona State University. And my advice for anyone who's interested in pursuing an MFA is be selective. Be very selective. Don't carpet bomb and apply to every program out there. Choose the ones with the writers who best reflect your tastes, the writers you want to work with, the writers who inspire you, excite you, the writers you see yourself writing alongside. Because those are the programs and those are the writers, those are the mentors who are going to shape your work, who are going to vouch for your work, who are going to protect your work and help you push your work further than anyone else.
3: our news and trends section, this issue, we have a Q&A with Tracy Sherrod, who's the editorial director of Amistad Press. Amistad was founded as an independent publisher in 1967 um, and is now an imprint of HarperCollins. And it's known for publishing really important works of fiction and nonfiction by African-American authors, including Edward P. Jones. Um, they published his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Known World, and Jacqueline Woodson's Another Brooklyn. So our associate editor, Dana Isakawa, went up to the Amistad offices and spoke with Tracy about some of the challenges that editors of color face in the publishing industry and the importance of publishing multicultural voices.
5: I do believe something special is going on right now where all of us are questioning our biases and and racism in a more serious way and, and then, I also believe there's another segment of the population that is embracing their hostility toward other races. And they are really speaking loudly. So, <laughs> so we, you know, those of us who are trying to do better um, and have a more beloved society need to speak louder and perhaps show some love to the the other people who are really having a challenging time. And then maybe, (laughs) maybe then, we can make America great again.
2: (laughs) It's a scary time,
5: right? (laughs) It is, it is. But I think it's gonna be a productive time. I remember back in like 2008, um, nine, and there was just this like drought in um, multicultural literature. And I was thinking, I mean, there were a few books and great books, but there were very few in terms of number that were coming out. And I remember telling a friend in publishing, you know, that believe it or not, this is like a really good time because I know that people are in their homes writing and creating. And in the next few years, it's going to be an explosion of just amazing, amazing literature, and I think that is happening now. I think it's happening now. (laughs) And I think we're gonna, the the books that are being published now and in the next few years, I, I believe are gonna be destiny changers for the country.
0: You know, back in the day, when I first started at Poets and Writers, which was last century in 1999, mm-hmm. we as an organization used to go bowling, mm. uh, which was a lot of fun. Of course, being from Wisconsin, I was no stranger to the bowling alley.
3: Oh, totally! I <laughs> spent so many weekends yes. at the bowling alley. Yes.
0: Popular sport in yeah. uh, cold Wisconsin. Yeah. Um. It was a lot of fun, um, and the the competitive spirit of Poets and Writers uh, burned (laughs) brightly. Uh, But in the last decade or so, the athletic department here at Poets and Writers uh, has been a little quiet Mm -hmm. uh, until recently.
3: Yes. Last month, we got a very interesting query over the transom by one Jeffrey Gleaves at the Paris Review, Mm -hmm. challenging us at Poets and Writers to a game of softball.
0: And we're... Not ones to ignore a challenge.
3: No, in fact,
0: uh,
3: a little known secret about uh, yours truly is that um, while Kevin was bowling back in nineteen ninety nine, I was actually still in high school um, <laughs> playing competitive fast pitch softball. It was a huge part of my life. I almost went to college for it. Uh-huh. Uh, did not go that route, obviously, um, but it's still, you know, it's still in still in the veins. Mm-hmm. So when this email came in, I, of course, was incredibly excited. Absolutely. Maybe a little too
0: excited. Some of us were more excited than others, I think. You know, some people uh, needed a little bit more convincing. Mm -hmm.
3: But we did manage to scrabble together a ragtag crew. Mm -hmm. Uh, Including
0: our executive director, Elliot Figman. Yes. Who was on second
3: base. Mm -hmm. He brought it. Yep. So we met the challenge. And uh, we went up to Chelsea Park to face the Paris Review, who have a storied tradition of softball.
0: Right, they've been playing since George Plimpton mm-hmm. was there.
3: So our intrepid reporter, Dani Sakawa was uh, in the field.
0: Well, not the playing field. No,
3: right, the proverbial field. <laughs> she was on the scene. Yes. And uh, caught some of the action.
2: Batter up. Did they All right, here is batter Melissa batter, Falavino. Batter, 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 Blue shorts, <laughs> Ray-Bans. Four, three, three, Swing! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm here with Jessica Wabara our senior web editor. So how are you feeling about the game today? Feeling good. You know, we were a little nervous, but we did some good warm-up, and I think they were better than we expected, so we're looking good. We're looking good. Can you tell me what the team name is? Uh, I believe it is the Poets and Writers Lot. Okay, I thought we were going with Sonnet Boom. <laughs> Do we know what happened to that? We... I thought that Amper Samlot sounded better. Bill Smythe, our production editor. Bill, what's your position on the team? I am the pitcher. Okay, how are you feeling about the game today?
0: Nah, excited, excited for this game.
2: All right, do you want to make a prediction for the score?
0: I'm going to predict 25 to 17 poets and writers in a tight game.
2: Ooh, bold claim. All right, Carolyn, what field position are you playing today? I'm playing right field. So do you have any predictions for the score? A little trash talk for us towards the Paris Review? Um, we're going to pummel them. We are going p- <laughs> to pummel them. Um, I predict the score is going to be... I predict it's going to be um, 22 to 3. Poets and writers winning, of course, right? Of course, of course.
3: <laughs> oh!
0: Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right now. First, first. Fly, fly out. Come on, Bill. Bill.
1: I came out here because I thought there would be hot dogs. I don't see nor smell any hot dogs in the area. Part of me is really disappointed that I took time off of work with the prospect of eating some frankfurters. And quite frankly, this is just making me angry.
2: There you go! Oh, yeah.
1: hey, what just happened?
2: Another fly out. Got it. So, yeah. if we get one more out, we're. we this leader. All right, Kevin Larimer steps yeah. up to the plate. Editor in chief. Editor <laughs> in chief. Sporting some nice high tops. <laughs> go, Chief! <laughs> Sporting some high tops. doesn't not not wow okay so what's our what's our team name here today we have the parisians from the paris review and what's poets and writers the poets and writers sonnet boom also known as the ampersand lot okay two names two <laughs> names All right, how how are you feeling about the game so far bonnie well you know it's a little it's a little discouraging but our team has a lot of determination you know it's hard to be out there and these you know have this other team continuously get points, but our team is holding their ground with uh, good determination. Yeah! Yeah!
4: Well oh.
2: <laughs> All right. I'm here with Jessica Lene Moore, our advertising manager, and she's been also watching loyally from the benches. Jessica, what's, what's been your favorite part of this game so far? Uh, it's, it's kind of been seeing um, the organization support each other and seeing everybody be themselves and have a great time, even though Parish Review has set the rules and is cheating. <laughs> How do we feel about the team name? Sonnet Boom? I think it's the Ampersand Lot Kids and Sonnet Boom. So we haven't made a decision. I think it it, it might be both. I mean I mean I think that I'll forever call it Sonnet Booms and not the Ampersand okay. Lot Kids. Alright, alright. Um so I mean as long as we're going with Sonnet Booms, I think it was a great suggestion by Bill Smythe. <laughs> I'm here with Lauren Stein, the editor of the Paris Review. So have you yourself ever played in one of these uh, softball games?
1: I once,
0: I once, I forget what it's called, but I once ran a couple of bases for someone who'd gotten injured.
2: Um, pinch runner. I grew up a pinch runner, thank you. Josh, I would uh, stay three, maybe?
1: I grew up going to a weekly hippie softball game with my parents I and mean, my sister and I both swore that we'd never play again when we were grown ups. I've kept my end of the bargain. You kept
2: your vow. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, look at that. Oh, look.
4: Oh my god.
2: I'm speaking with Amy Feltman who is our excellent, excellent advertising associate and she has been loyally watching on the bench, watching this game unfold. I believe we are in the fifth, fourth inning? I can neither confirm nor deny that. Moving right along. (laughs) So how are we feeling about the game, Amy? I don't think we will win in terms of points, but I think we might win in terms of spirit. Will it be a moral victory? It will be a moral victory. (laughs)
3: So that's it for this episode. Uh, What's next on the
0: docket? We have our first two-day Poets and Writers Live event. It's going to be January 14th and 15th in San Francisco. We have an amazing lineup. Uh, U.S. Poet Laureate Juan Felipe Herrera will be delivering the keynote. We also have Jane Hirschfield, Jonathan Franzen, uh, Susan Orlean, Kay Ryan, and dozens of others. We have authors, we have agents, editors, uh, it's going to be a great, great event. Um, tickets go on sale September 6th, and you can find out more at pw.org slash live. We'll also be
3: turning toward our November-December issue, which will focus on independent publishing. So we'll be talking about that and so much more in the next episode of Percent,
0: the Poets and Runners Podcast.
2: Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited by Melissa Fallovino with assistance from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Chris Sabrisky, Menage Quad, She Wolf, Brownout, and the Haydn Quartet. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including links to the full Dear President article, with more messages from 50 American poets and writers, the extended interview with Tracy Sherrod, and our database of MFA programs at pw.org forward slash ampersand.
0: Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, editor-in-chief of Poets and Writers.
3: And I'm Melissa. Wait, I
0: don't think Poets and Writers.
3: Poets and Writers.
0: Poets and Writers.
3: I'm Poets and Writers.
0: W. 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 Merca. God bless (laughs) Merca. W. All right.